Hey everybody, what's up? This is Joseph Coyne and welcome to the ACA Podcast. Hey guys, welcome back to the ACA Podcast. I'm your host, Joseph Coyne, and this is episode number 77. The ACA Podcast is brought to you by Valve Performance. Valve Performance make the Nord board, the Force Frame, Human Track, Force Decks, and now also Smart Speed. I talk about Force Decks, which are dual Force Plates, and the Force Frame, which is an isometric force testing device all the time. And we actually even discuss Force Decks a fair bit in this episode as well, so I won't spend more time on them. But for Valve's other products, the Nord board, look, it's a device that can measure force and torque output from the hamstrings during a Nordic curl, and it's great for identifying any athletes that may be at risk of hamstring or posterior chain injury. Meanwhile, Human Track, it's a 3D motion capture and biomechanical analysis system, lets you assess movement quality, range, balance, and stability in more than 20 common tests like your cervical flexion extension, your drop jumps, your overhead squats, just to name a few. Lastly, Smart Speed, if you're not familiar with Smart Speed, as the name implies, it's it's timing lights, and they're like the Rolls Royce of timing lights. So you can use it for all sorts of drills and tests, including like flying 30s. Um, 30 meter accelerations, uh, reactive agility work, reactive agility assessments, 505s, modified 505s, anything you want that that measures speed or change of direction or agility. So all of those products, super easy to use, produce data very quickly so you're not wasting any time as a coach. If you are looking to add some of this technology to your program, school, club, or practice, please reach out to them. Valperformance.com is the website. They're on all the socials. You can also shoot them an email, info at valperformance.com. Now, getting back to the podcast, the guest for episode number 77 is Nick Popovich. Nick has worked with professional basketball teams both nationally and internationally for a total of 23 years, 13 years in the Australian NBL with the West Sydney Razorbacks, the Sydney Kings, South Melbourne Dragons, and most recently Melbourne United. Also has spent 10 years in the Chinese CBA with Dongguan Leopards and Shenzhen Leopards. Uh, he's been part of two Olympic campaigns, 2004 and 2008 in Athens and Beijing respectively, a World Cup Championship in Japan in 2004 and the Commonwealth Games in Melbourne in 2006 as a performance coach for the Australian men's national basketball team. In that time, he's he's uh, won the NBL Championship four times as part of the team. Uh, he's been part of a gold medal winning team at the Commonwealth Games uh, and he's also won uh, New South Wales ABA championship as a player so he's right into basketball he's got a master's degree in exercise science from edith cowan university he's accredited asca level three snc coach and elite level coach in our pro structure um, he's also an accredited nsca a certified strength and conditioning coach and registered strength and conditioning coach with emeritus level over there with the nsca so he's vast experience especially in basketball and in this episode we talk all about this experience in basketball both in australia and in china and the differences between the two countries and cultures we also spend a fair chunk of time on coaching in basketball the importance of individualizing jump training for the players uh, especially considering how much they actually jump on court and training and in games and where the best place is for strength and power work in a professional basketball schedule so this discussion with nick was awesome uh, there's so many takeaways to come out of it for all snc coaches uh, from this episode, not just for those working in basketball or court sports. Uh, highly, highly recommend it. Please sit back, relax, grab some popcorn, and we'll get the show started. Okay, ASDA podcast, we're back on. Uh, I've got the wonderful Nick Popovich on, on this episode. Thanks, Nick, for coming on board. 
Thank you very much for having me. Much appreciate the opportunity and uh, yeah, looking forward to it. Right on, my man, right on. So look, we've got to start at the start. How and why did it all begin for you in uh, strength and conditioning? And, uh, and, and, and if you can, just progress us to where you are now and tell us a little about what, what you're doing now. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, um, at a very young age, I was very unathletic, very unfit. And like most kids, you know, you want to be involved in sports. At least when I was a kid, um, everyone was into sports. It wasn't really uh, any uh, PlayStations around or games you could play at home. So we're always outside playing sports. So that was something that I kind of grabbed with both hands at about the age of 10, 11 and and was very unskilled at everything I tried. Um, So for me personally, I had to really work hard at, you know, being able to kick a ball or throw a throw a ball and and i and i found it something that i was passionate about doing so during high school yeah okay you throw yourself in and you try i tried cricket i tried rugby league i tried soccer and and my first sport that i played was soccer it was a it was something that i i loved as as a kid and um kept doing that at high school and a friend of mine introduced me to uh to basketball and i didn't know what basketball was he said, why don't you come along and we'll, we'll have a look at this sport and loved it. We had an, an American teacher and he used to play for the University of Connecticut, uh, Mr. Ron Tedford. And he was awesome. I just watched the guy take the session and the way the athletes were running up and down. I thought, this is phenomenal. And you don't have to really run that far. A court's only 30 meters or so. Mm-hmm. So um, Going along those lines, I, I kind of thought, wow, I really have to work at this from a physical side as well as a skill side. And in all the sports I played, I made the cricket team, I was on the soccer team, I made the basketball team. The common denominator was practice. And at that stage, most kids were going through growth spurts, we're, we're 14 or so, 15. I was a very lanky, skinny late sort of developing kids. So the only way I could get better at these sports was I had to work hard. So hard at the physical side as well as the skill side. And so I guess to answer your question, even though I didn't know it at the time, strength and conditioning was was something that I was innately involved in through my own personal um, desires to get better. As you sort of progress in life, you get a little bit older, um, I landed in the computer industry of all industries. And a friend of mine and I went, did a diploma in programming and operations. And we, um, we landed in a job and I knew nothing about computers. And this is a day, Joseph, when uh, computers were the size of a, a car, you know, big mainframes, you had a terminal and it was all these weird and wonderful things. And you controlled everything through this terminal. But I, no disrespect to anyone out there, but I hated it. I, I absolutely hated the industry, not for any reason more than it wasn't a passion of mine. But given the uh, the commitments I had at the time, I was 18, 19, I had some financial commitments. I had to sort of stick at it. So I stayed at, at that job for five years and, you know, literally found a way to dislike it every day. Um, but I was, uh, I guess... Uh, sitting there at this terminal by myself at 3 a.m. in the morning one, one night or one morning and uh, flicking through the newspaper and, and, and saw an advertisement for the Australian College of Physical Education. 
And it was a big aha moment for me. It was like, that's it. That's what I want to do. That's, I can combine my passion with a career. Great. What, where do I sign? What do I got to do? Then I found out how much it costs. And I thought, oh, man, I can't afford that. Um, at that time, uh, yeah, it was, it was pretty pricey for, for a, for a three-month or a four-month term. So I thought, what do I do? What do I do? How do I go about um, pursuing this career? And I signed up for a fitness leader course. I don't know if you remember them. Fitness leader one and two back in the day. Uh, they were run like, I guess your cert threes and fours are now. And signed along, signed up and went along. And the first person I met was the lecturer there and walked in. I was early and, and introduced myself. And his name is Paul Batman. And he changed my whole life and tra trajectory of how I thought I was going to go about this. Because I, at the time, I thought, I'll do this fitness leader one and two course. I'll work in gyms, you know. I'm interested. I don't know about the sports side. I didn't see an entry point uh, at that time. Rugby league had strength conditioning coaches. Um, AFL definitely or VFL had them as well. But I I didn't see how I could enter that that um, that realm or that industry without having any experience in those sports. So I started talking to Paul, and he he mentioned to me that he was a full time lecturer at the University of New South Wales in sports science. And to be honest with you, I never ever thought about university. It wasn't something that I came out of school thinking that's what I wanna do. Um, our career paths at school, and this is in the mid eighties was accountant, dentist, doctor, lawyer, um, those type of vocations. And that was something that I was never gonna pursue. Um, so he talked to me, Paul talked to me about this course, sports science course. Wow, okay. Listen to him present through the fitness leader course. Loved it. Learned how the heart worked in one evening. The different chambers and the blood flow and the oxygen. I was like, wow, this is fascinating. And unlike some other subjects, it really came quickly to me. I thought, this is great. I, I know what he's talking about. Let's have a go at this uh, university thing. Made my application. I was 24 years of age at the time applied for uni, thought, great, I'll get in and I'll pursue it. And uh, the penny dropped. They said, sorry, you can't get in. You're not smart enough. <laughs> it's not going to happen. So I kind of fell back in my chair and thought, wow, I'm 24, 25. It's the early to mid 90s, about 93, 94. What the hell am I going to do with my career? What? I I'm done. I'm 25 years old. I'm old. I can't change careers, you know. So did some odd jobs for about a year, almost a year, uh, building sites, meat factory, worked in a video warehouse when they had VHS tapes to, to, to sell and stock and did everything I could. And I thought, I'll give it one more try. If I don't get in, I'm just going to sit on a plane, go overseas and, and try and do it overseas. Because at that time, it was new. Sports science was new. It was coming through. Most of the, the degrees... I guess in the late 80s, early 90s, and, and to your listeners out there, correct me if I'm wrong, um, it could have, you know, most of them I think were in physical education. Um, this was basing uh, the curriculum around physiology, anatomy, functional movement patterns, all that type of stuff, biomechanics. 
and had one more crack and luckily I got in. Luckily I got in, I was one of three mature age students selected. So I kind of grabbed the opportunity and said to myself, right, I can't let this go. Um, do everything I can, study as hard as I can, read, uh, research, everything I possibly could to, to, to garner as much information as I could to put myself in the best position. During the course, we had placements. And uh, the placement that I managed to, to, to lock in, which I don't know how, was at the AIS, at the Australian Institute of Sport. Mm. And there was a couple of, a few great coaches there that really helped me out. Julian Jones, who I believe is still there in a different role, but still with the AIS and, and obviously a huge part of the ASCA. Um, Denise Jennings and Stuart McCormack, who, who have all had great careers in, in the SNC world. And I spent two weeks there and really learned a lot from those three people and, and was able to take on board what they were saying and how they were, they were coaching and how they were interacting with, with different athletes. And you had all sorts of athletes come through from basketball to volleyball, to rugby league, to union, to swimming. So it was a, it was a big sort of kaleidoscope of, of people that you could learn from. Um, and I saw from that, and when I finished my degree, I saw from those experiences a niche being basketball. Now, at that time, and, and again, I, I uh, don't mean any disrespect to anyone, but I don't think there was anyone full-time in an S&C role within professional basketball. So I thought, okay, while I'm at uni, really try and learn as much as I can from the course and apply it to basketball athletes, long-levered, heavier, mobile athletes that have to be strong, powerful, agile, quick with touch as well, with skill and touch. And so I, I geared my final thesis at university to, towards, you know, periodization of, of training elite basketball athlete. And um, as they say, you know, the rest is history. I, I kind of finished on the highest possible note that I could. Paul, during that time, along with other lecturers, were fantastic and really helped me uh, develop that, that side of, of what I was trying to aspire to achieve. And then, you know, once university finished, you, you go out to the real world and, and you try and make it all happen. So in a long-winded answer, that's where it kind of started from mm. uh, and how it developed. Um, and currently where I'm at, you know, we've just finished the season with uh, the Melbourne United team team was successful, won the championship, which was fantastic. I uh, spent a long time overseas in China, it's, uh, which was an, an awesome experience. But um, coming back into the NBL, um, it had been a long time since I was in the NBL. And, and so I had to relearn some things and how things would change over the, the decade that I, was, that I was away. And from there, you know, um, really happy and really um, ecstatic that uh, we were able to, to win the championship in such a uh, such a, a difficult and challenging year that it was affected by COVID. So progressing from there, you know, hopefully uh, be able to continue helping the athletes I work with uh, be successful in what they do. Mm, yeah, that's an awesome story, Nick. Awesome story. And uh, look, mate, you, you've obviously Thanks. been at the uh, top of the game in, in basketball in both Australia and China, as you mentioned, you spent a fair bit of time over in China. What are the sort of main differences you would, you would say between 
those two nations and the the sporting programs that you've been involved in whether it's like the culture the the beliefs the education what are the differences there it's a great question you pose um there are huge differences massive differences um first and foremost we, we rolled into our first season there myself and uh the head coach i work with uh, a guy by the name of brian gorgian who's currently the olympics coach and uh in the US preparing the team for, for the Olympics in Japan. We rolled into there and um, it was May the 1st and we had um, nine months to prepare the team. So we're talking a nine month preseason that whacked us in the face like, like, a, like a five kilo medicine ball. It's like, wow, dude, for nine months, sure there'd be some games, but how many games are you going to play? Are <laughs> you going to play a season or two seasons uh, of games? So we had a conversation about it, and uh, his words to me were, "You have to come up with a plan." You go, and I said, "Brian, this this uh, this doesn't exist anywhere on the planet. There's no one that's doing nine month preseasons. You know, it was May the first, and we're starting in November or December, somewhere there, December the eighth. And so I sat down and formulated something and I just really went into blocks. I just, Hey, this three month block, we're going to focus on this and I give the guys a week rest and then we'll focus into, we'll transition into this and then we'll give them another break and put that all together, had it translated and uh, gave it to the, uh, the owner. You got to understand most of the clubs at that time were, uh, were owned by the one person. Some were open, owned by a sports bureau, but uh, most of them had the one owner. So the buck stops there. You know, it's, it's either decided yes or no um, with regards to specifics of the program. Gave it to the owner and he looked at it and he said, what's all this one week rest crap? <laughs> and I, I said, uh, boss, being respectful, we got, we got to give them some time. I mean, they're, they're going to drag their knuckles on the ground by the time we get to the season. And he didn't look convinced. And, and so I sort of threw it out there. I said, well, if it doesn't work. You can fire me. That's okay. It's my plan. So, you know, what the hell? Let's give it a shot. Um, so thankfully it worked. We started the season 10-0. and 0, And I think part of it was the guys were just so over the moon to, to have a week rest every, every so often. Um, so straight off the onset, huge difference in, in how the leagues differ in perception of what preparation is needed. I mean, if you tried that in, in Australia, nine months, I don't think you could get anyone to, to buy into that, especially with all the education we have about periodization and how we, we, we plan and trying to peak everyone for the right time. So that was the first thing. Um, from a league standpoint, even though you have such a long preparation, the season itself was only 14 to 16 weeks. And you played our last season there in 2019, you played 46 games plus playoffs in 14 weeks. So your, your volume of games is three to four week, three to four games every week. You're on four to six flights a week, depending on the schedule. Um, when do you fit the SNC in? When do you, you know, you might have had all this preparation and then all of a sudden you're just playing games, playing games, playing games. Guys get injured. How do you rehab guys? You know, you're getting off a plane, you're going straight to the stadium, 
for a court session because you're playing the next day because the day after you're on another plane to go somewhere else. So it really becomes a challenge um, from that point of view. Um, the correlation of nutrition to performance was, was a big challenge that I had. Um, that's not to say that, that China didn't have nutritious sources of, of, of uh, food that they could, they could uh, supply for their athletes, they do. But the preparation of that food, what foods correlate best to performance, when to eat those foods, how to eat, uh, what are you trying to avoid, um, body compositions, powder weight ratios, all those things. When you tie it back to, uh, to the nutritional side, that was very challenging. And for me, it took me a long time to be able to uh, get buy-in from that side, not because of the athletes didn't want to. Um, culturally, this is how they were brought up on certain foods. So the only way I would, well, I guess I was lucky in one way, but, but not um, for the athlete I work with. He, uh, he tore his ACL and, and went over to the States to, to have the surgery. Um, that was a, a typical thing that happened, you know, uh, again, I'm sure there's, there's many good surgeons in China that uh, operated on different injuries, but uh, with, an, with a professional sporting team that I was with, uh, they had a link there, they had a surgeon that they trusted so that the athlete would go over to the US, have the repair done and come back. Well, when this guy came back, <laughs> Hungry Jacks and Jack in the Box and McDonald's and, and again, no disrespect to those companies, but when you're talking athletes, man, he came back, it was probably 12 kilos heavier, 13 kilos heavier. And so through his rehabilitation and his buy-in, we had more buy-in from everyone else because it basically became a visual thing. Wow, you're looking great. You know, your body's looking great. You're getting better with your, um, with your injury. And then you have more buy-in. And yet, then you have the ability to affect change within the environment that you're in and, and how, how, um, how athletes approach their food and how the team approaches their food. So that was a big one. And then the other one that I think of is the education level. A lot of the athletes we had had come through the junior ranks at 14, 15 years of age. And with that, you know, you're pretty much finishing school at that time and uh, you're becoming a professional athlete. You're part of the junior program. The club that I worked for, the, the Dongguan Leopards, who became the Shenzhen Leopards, they provided an English teacher. So there was education, there was English learning, there was some other uh, topics being taught there, but it wasn't like attending full, full-time school. They did the best they can. And, you know, you have to remember the, the training program or what was required was a minimum of two sessions a day plus your S&C. So you're your full-time athlete at, um, at a younger age. So I guess those were the biggest differences we faced initially uh, compared to my experience in, in Australia at the time. Mm, now it makes me think of actually uh, of a female basketballer that I helped out and, and she was quite talented. She was in the WNBA for a while, but I, I want to say she went into a sporting school at age seven um, that was just for basketball. Wow. And uh, like, yeah, lot, long-term member of the national team, but it's it just that they get put into those positions in those schools so early, right? The education can be vastly different to, to what you might be dealing with 
somebody that's maybe still doing a university degree in Australia while still playing professional basketball. Exactly, exactly. You've got to you've got to look at it too. They become full time athletes at such a young age when they should be full time students at school, and you know, and, and developing their sporting um, skills and, and careers and development, I guess, as they uh, progress through maturation and become a little bit older and, and wiser and and all those fundamental learning abilities um, have been established. To me, one of the issues that we spoke about, the coaches and I spoke about, some of the young kids coming through did not ha hadn't learned the ability to learn. So their, their ability to retain information, you could have coached a, a younger a child at, say, 13, 14 years old that hasn't gone through enough of a school life to retain information and so you've you've told them something one day and the second day it's it's gone and, and so from a coaching perspective especially when you're dealing with maturing bodies it, it's you've got to really be on it every single day and and uh you know and then within that the obvious difference is language you know how do you get that exact uh message through to a young athlete that has stopped school as maybe done primary school in a couple of years of high school. And um, from there, you're able to, or you're trying to, to help that child be a better person all around as well as an athlete. It's a challenge. Mm, yeah, it's an interesting point you raise. I hadn't really considered that that much, but we always talk about how physical development helps with uh, brain development and so on. And, it, and it's, it's probably vice versa as well, the mental side of things and development and getting the, uh, like at least... Uh, to a certain level of education, I don't know what it is, would probably also help your ability to, and physically in acquiring skills and, and retaining information, especially in a team-based sport where there's a lot of strategy and, uh, and uh, diff different tactics and techniques you might need to use based on who you're playing. Exactly, exactly. I, I've always believed that you are only as good or as strong or as uh, skilled as what your mind allows you to be. So retaining information, learning new strategies, learning new skills, there's that cognitive approach and that process that needs to happen. And if you haven't fully developed that, how do you get better at your sport? It's, it's an interesting one and I'm not up to date with any of the research there, but I'm sure there is, there's a link between the two. Mm -hmm. Mate, so, so that's obviously like one of the sort of, I'd say, key lessons you might have got out of your, your time in China and probably brought back to Australia and, and what you're doing in Australia. What, what are some other things that you really learned over there that you've been able to um, either uh, take from there and bring back to Australia or just things that you think are relevant for the listeners to say, okay, this is how we improve performance. These are the key things that I'd suggest would be uh, based on my learnings and my experiences in both Australia and China. Yeah, great question. Um... Look, I really enjoy being in China. I really enjoyed the experience. Um, I had been in the NBL for about a decade, 11 years or so prior to going to China. So I had a preconceived idea of how a program should look for a professional sporting organization. And what I learned really quickly was you've got to throw the book out. You've got to really try and reassess what's important um, really have to assess what can you achieve and 
how that those goals for the team or the individual, how are you going to get there? And given the schedule that I just described and how the preseason duration was so long and, and uh, then the in-season games are relentless, uh, the schedule is pretty brutal. I learned that nothing is impossible. It really, the body will always follow the mind. And I'm not, you know, I don't have a degree in psychology and, and like yourself, I'm sure we've, we've both covered those subjects in our, in our qualifications and our degrees, but, um, but I really found out firsthand from, from the kids, you know, 18, 19, 20 year olds, that would get better during the season. Now, physiologically, you've done a nine-month preseason. You're playing every second day. How are you going to get better? How does how do you get better? How does that work? Well, you really only have one choice. You either do, or you're on the scrap heap. And I don't know how true this this uh, this fact is, but I cut told it quite a few times early on. There was. At the time I started in China, there was more people that were registered playing basketball at all levels, your weekend warriors to your professionals, than there were people in the USA. So 400 million people registered. And so even if that number's half true, even if it's 200 million, well, if you don't pull your weight and you don't perform, well, you're out and we'll get someone else because the pool is so vast in terms of uh, opportunities of, of who's out there so the biggest thing I learned was was hey nothing's impossible yes we have to approach it in a scientific way and yes we have to apply all the principles of physiology and recovery and adaptability and all those different principles to what we're trying to achieve but if you have a look at this year in some ways this COVID year that affected the NBL and that that is currently affecting the rugby league and the AFL was very similar to the year that we had, or the, the years that I've had in China. So we, we were away for a long time. I think the longest was one month and that was leading into the playoffs. We were able to get through that. Um, we're still able to train both on and off court. Um, nothing's impossible. If you really set your mind to it and you have a plan and then you, you have, plan A, plan B, plan C, and you throw all those out because something else has happened and all of a sudden you can't go to this state because COVID's there and you've got to go somewhere else. That's one of the biggest lessons I learned that being resilient and having a clear goal in your mind of, hey, this is where I want to get physically, individually. This is where I want to get from a skill point of view. This is where I'd like to get from a team point of view. And you keep chipping away it's going to happen. It will happen. It just you just got to be determined. You got to have patience and you got to be very, very flexible. You know, you've planned all this stuff that's out the window because of whatever has happened uh, with the environment or, or the landscape that you're within. You can't do that. How are you going to make it happen? And I was hopeful that I applied some of those principles to our, to our season this year with Melbourne United. Mm, mm. it's so interesting and for the leaders for the listeners sorry uh just my sort of i'll say it's a really consistent theme in china at least in my experience is that you don't really know if something's going to happen until the day until you're having breakfast on that day um if yeah. it really yeah. is going to happen so it, it's yeah. almost not even worth 
planning out something to a great extent because it's probably going to change anyway. And uh, it's it's one of these things you've got to be super flexible. But I, I really identify with that, Nick. I really do. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you, Joseph. I, um, I used to just say to myself, you know what? I planned this. Everyone has said it's going to happen. It's not happening. <laughs> what am I going to do instead as a as a backup? But yeah, you're you're 100 right. And and I think most sports in Australia are finding that out because of COVID. You know, we've gone down this path for 18 months or so, and uh, you've, you're seeing that everyone has backup plans. And you know, how do we get around things? And where do we send our athletes? And you know, we had great companies like Derrimit. Uh, gyms in Melbourne come on board and last year when, when Melbourne was in COVID and in lockdowns like uh, Sydney currently is um, they supplied equipment to our guys and so you know getting a bike a stationary bike getting some some dumbbells a barbell some free weights some bands mini bands long bands for the guys to be able to train in-house I mean that was huge for the club it, you know I can't thank Derrimet enough but uh, to have equipment for every single athlete on our team yes it's not a, a structured gym and you don't have every particular machine but you can at least build some foundations there for sure for sure mate I'd, I'd be really interested you said you had 11 years or so in the NBL then you went to China and you had sort of 10 years in China now you've come back to Australia I'd be really interested in the biggest sort of changes that have gone from that, that, or that have evolved in your programming and your physical preparation um, sort of uh, delivery after that first stint in the NBL to now that you've come back in there. What have been the major changes uh, from from those in the in that period? The biggest thing I'd have to say is that the advent of technology and, and the inclusion of technology, your GPS. Um, yeah, athlete load monitoring, most of that was in the infancy, if not non-existent at all, when I first started in, my, in the NBL. Um, you definitely had heart rate monitors and things you can monitor that way. You can monitor RPE and, you know, sort of uh, players' loadings that way. But um, the, the introduction of, of uh, the technology, the sports science, and how much that can help drive your decisions. Now, I'm a firm believer that, that data should drive your decisions, but we are all human beings and we need to relate to the, to the athletes and the coaches that we work with. So given that, you know, you, you can't, well, in my opinion, in my humble opinion, you can't really go the other way. You can't sort of say, well, this is what the data says and this is what we've got to do. Well, let's have a look at the, the athlete. Let's communicate with the athlete. Let's communicate with the coach. Let's see how all of that um, you know, meshes together. Um, so that's a big difference from my first sort of stint in the NBL. And this, the other one I can think of off the top of my head, and this is rightly so, is the player involvement. Um, yes, there were teams that, that uh, I worked with and in my first stint that I was very fortunate to be a part of, there was great player involvement um, from a... Um, from a point of view of how the programs run, um, what needs to be required, I think there's been a progression there, a good progression, and you're having feedback come from all angles. You know, this might be the strategy that the coaching staff are looking at. The players might have an, 
an opinion of, hey, look, that works really well. How about looking at it from this point of view? Um, and then you bring in the support staff as well. So the overall involvement has become even more so um, a combination and, and molded together so that you, you have an even better program. And that's not to say it wasn't like that in, in the early 2000s, I believe it was. Um, I just think it's, it's, it's more so now. So those two sort of differences are the major ones that, that, um, that sort of come to mind. Uh, the sport's grown a lot. It's gone through you know, peaks and valleys and, and, and the sport itself in, in basketball is in a good point right now. It's, it's, it's progressing, it's growing. Um, so I think the ability for clubs to, to have sponsors come on board, to have uh, TV and the accessibility to more fans and, and, you know, the way that social media is working these days and the internet's grown, you know, like you have a lot of resources to help develop the club. That was, that was something that was coming through initially, but not as big as it is now as well. It's mm-hmm. interesting. Interesting. What well, one question that sort of sprang to mind was about those practicalities of, of the athlete involvement. Like, how is that actually trans, or, or the coaches as well, or the other sports stuff? How does it actually translate into how you're preparing the guys? Has it been like uh, the athlete saying, Look, Nick, we're not going to run suicides uh, five <laughs> days a week, mate. Um, we need to be doing something else. Like, has there been changes like that? Or, Nick, we, we don't like doing Nordics, mate. We're too big. Or, we don't like squatting. Like, how does how that actually translate into day to day practice? That's, that's, a, that's a great point you raise. I think most time athletes will always say, Look, I'm a basketball player, I'm a rugby league player, I'm, I'm a volleyball player, whatever it is, uh, athlete, I, I want to do the sport. But I've always believed in communicating as much as possible to each and every person that I work with the importance of whatever we're doing. And it's got to be specific. It can't be just, you know, it's got to be purposeful. It can't be just there for the sake of just, oh, we're going to do this because we did this 10 years ago or whatever it may be. And the correlation between whatever exercises we do for each individual athlete and the performance or the physical performance on the court has got to be quite a high correlation. So it's interesting you mentioned Nordics. I had at least half the guys, maybe even more, using them this year. And long levered, yes. But, you know, in the sport of basketball, are you ever going to reach maximum velocity in sprinting? No, there's not enough space. There's not enough space. But acceleration is huge. And the acceleration from standing start point to whatever speed you can ascertain to achieve the physical move that you're trying to do. You know, as we both know, you need all those areas of the lower body working in unison, strong, powerful, agile, uh, rate of force development has to be right there. So it's important that we do these exercises. And um, I think that comes down to Joseph as well, your relationship with the athlete, your professional relationship and how, your rapport and how you interact. Um, so thankfully, I didn't have too much pushback this year. It was great from that point. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, I could just imagine. I could just imagine, um, mate. You mentioned you mentioned like rate of force amount acceleration, like basketball. It's like a first, second step quickness sport or a change of pace sport, in, in yes. my experience anyway. Um, uh, 
and, and you mentioned these things, acceleration, rate of force amount, rate of force development. Besides those things, what, what are the other sort of big rocks you'd focus on in a strength and conditioning program for basketball? Awesome. I'm glad you asked that. You've got to be able to move. You've got to be agile. And you've got to be agile in different planes of motion. It's not always linear. Frontal plane, lateral, diagonal, backwards, reverse pivoting, changing direction, slowing down, accelerating, then changing direction, then pivoting and turning. So um, most of the athletes in basketball are pretty big human beings. And I don't mean that disrespectfully. I mean that from a point of, like I said before, long levered, tall. Um, I think the shortest athlete we might've had on the team this year was just on six foot, you know, 183 centimeters or whatever it is. Um, so when you look in the general population, that's, you know, that's a decent height. And then you get guys that are six foot 10, six foot 11, seven foot, six, nine, long levered. Um, you have to have the ability to yes, be strong in a static position if you're pushing and shoving against another player and doing whatever you need to do, but it's position specific as well. Um, how the strategies that are lined up from the coaching staff and how, what type of, what type of play are they looking for? Is it a fast pace? Is it a half court sort of set? Well, if it's a fast pace and you're always moving, you guys have got to be able to move. So for me, it's always been a strength and power, rate of force development uh, are the big rocks. But another big one is, is agile speed and speed endurance. So great that you can do that first quarter. Great that you can do that second quarter. Can you do it third? Can you do it fourth as fatigue sets in, especially if you're playing long minutes. Um, and so if you're on that court for 25, 30, 35 minutes, um, fatigue will set in but do you have the ability for that fatigue not to drop off too much to flatten out and our guys i thought this year and, and every time i've worked with a professional basketball team i've always tried to impart those areas uh, my first year back at melbourne the guys were great really bought in this year was even better from a, from a point of view that we had so much time to prepare with COVID, and from there we threw a lot of those different disciplines in a lot of those strength qualities. Um, our, I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure some of the guys got uh, bored with it towards the end, but they were still respectful and we went through and actually worked really well. Our, our warm up, our, our pre practice warm up was a 10 to 15 minute session of general dynamic movements in all all sort of uh, linears of, of motion and then it would progress into a lot of speed and agility with changes of direction and so specific to the sport but we would get our sessions we would get at least two of those sessions in a week during season where i i felt that if if you didn't um you develop that pre-season we, we developed developed it really well if you didn't maintain it to a pretty decent level um, you'd lose it. And, and, and the guys, like I said, that are playing a lot of minutes, sure, they're going to have it in game, but what about the guys that aren't? So, you know, we found an easy way to, to combine all that, use it as part of our warm up. And by the time you finish that, you've got the team physically prepped for a, uh, a pretty full on uh, practice session. 
Yeah, it was really interesting. You, you mentioned the sort of endurance component about it because everyone thinks of it as like a speed quickness sport, but there's like some fine motor skills that need to be performed. And if you're fatigued, like an exceptional shooter, right, might, uh, might if you, an exceptional shooter will be classed as exceptional if they get over half their shots in or if they sit at around 50% uh, of their shots actually going in. And so there's these fine motor skills. And when you're fatigued, those obviously become much harder to perform accurately and well. And yeah, that, that really stuck with me in what you're saying then. I, I wanted just to ask you, you, you said um, you've got these guys doing it in the game. Um, and so, but some of the guys might not be doing it mm -hmm. in the game, getting this like stimulus, the speed power stimulus. And one of the big sort of uh, discussions you hear around basketball strength and conditioning is how much sort of jumping or plyometrics do people do or should they do in training because they might be doing all this jumping in the game. What, what's your take on that? Um, do you guys use jumping plyometrics outside of what they're doing on the court in actual uh, technical training? Um, and if so, how uh, and, and how do you fit it in? Yeah, great question as well, Joseph. Um, we did a lot of it in preseason and, and to, to take it one step back, we did a lot of landings as well. Um, we wanted to look at, and this is where I was talking about the data driving your decisions. Uh, when I first came into Melbourne, I, I brought on board um, the Valve Performance Four Sticks, the bilateral landing platforms and, and the force platforms, I should say. And that was a great tool, a fantastic tool to have, to look at the asymmetry of, of guys as they land, our athletes as they land, and, and then try and best as you can, even out those symmetries, those asymmetries, I should say. Um, so in our preseason programs, we did have plyometrics. We had different type of box jumps, different type of lateral jumps, mini hurdle work, but um, a lot of landing stuff, both single leg, double leg, absorption of, of force through the chain uh, and looking at how um, guys disperse that force. Um, then when you move through to season, you really have to, you really have to look at who does what on the court and how individualized um, their jumps program needs to be. Now, when you look at the data from the uh, GPS recordings, you might have 250 to 300 jumps per player per per practice session. Um, some of the game time data off the top of my head, 180 to maybe 230 jumps. Now of different heights, I think one of our players in the semifinals had something like um, 75, 78 jumps over 40 centimeters. So albeit 40 centimeters for, for that particular player, he, he was a taller player, isn't going to be a big jump to, to, to execute. You've got to think about body weight, landing, repetitive, uh, repetitive uh, execution in the game. So you're not going to have a lot of jumps in season for that particular player in his SNC program, given that he's putting so much um, stress on those, those joint areas and those muscle areas during a game. But within that, you work around that. You've got to make sure the structures are strong you still have to have some type of rate of force development component. It just might not be a plyometric jump. It could be something simple like I was talking about before with 
with the warm-ups, you know, it could be very plyometric in nature, but it's a change of direction drill. It's a, it's a running drill. It's a speed drill. So you have that. For the guys that don't get that stimulus in, in game, our coaching staff was fantastic in that specific to their position, they would run individual sessions around practice and those sessions would be very plyometric in nature. Sure, it was uh, body weight loaded. It wasn't anything more than body weight loaded. But with those guys not getting that stimulus there, I definitely have it in their programs. I definitely have something there, depending again on what the data was telling me. Uh, player A plays five minutes a game, um, has a 30 to 40 minute individual session, practices two hours, you know, the, the, the strength session, the strength finishing session prior to all that, hey, I'm not going to wear the guy out. And, and get him doing 10 sets of five jumps or at 80 centimeters or whatever it may be. Um, let's be smart about it. Let's do some landings. Let's do some single leg hop type drills to linearly, laterally. And what does his data from the four sticks, what does his data from the GPS tell me about what he needs? Then what does he need? Um, tell me, you know, let me know how you're feeling. You're feeling a bit, you know, weaker on the left side. Why? Let's have a look at your data. Okay. Don't feel as powerful when you plant that foot. You're going up strong. You know, you feel a bit sort of weak in that area. Um, let's, let's focus on that. So I think it's a very individualized thing, both in the preseason and the in-season periods. But I'm not one for saying, okay, let's do all this work, let's prep it, and then never do it again in season because we're playing the game. No, you're definitely going to lose those qualities. It's going to diminish um, if you don't stay on top of it. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah, for sure. I, I totally agree with that. The uh, landing asymmetry stuff. So basically people would jump or your athletes would jump, and when they landed on the four sticks, you would go, okay, there might be an asymmetry to the left or to the right. And then from there, you would have them do landing, single lead landings to try and maybe more on one side than the other to try and correct that. T- tell us what you're doing in that situation. I always took on board the musculoskeletal uh, screenings that our physiotherapists did. And we have uh, great physiotherapists at the club that work hand in hand with our, our strength and conditioning staff. And we, we all work together. So we look at all of the, the, the data available and then someone's landing, say example, 25% asymmetry to the right leg and that person had a knee injury x amount of months ago okay so are we getting that side of his body mobile and stable before we can express power and once we have that okay we have stability in 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 the area say if it's say his issue is a knee issue he's had the, the the injury he started losing power through the knee um, but as we know, it's, it's a whole chain of events through the ankle and the hip as well. And from there, the program will be based on, okay, we can't overload it because we've got to get the technique right. So let's, let's start slow. Let's start really slow. It might be only three reps. might be only five reps. might be only a couple of sets. Get that right. And then when you've bettered your stability, your ability to express force from that stable position. Okay, let's ramp it up a little bit. Let's progress it. If we need to regress it at any stage, we can. But those fine motor developments 
that become major mode of developments through the expression of their, their power and their force is crucial that we, we do each and every day to some degree. So um, our force X testing was monthly, sometimes every few weeks, depending on the individual athletes uh, requirements. And then we would retest after a certain time with a, an adjusted program to see any improvements or hopefully not any, any sort of worse situations. Um, but uh, I can safely say that we had a really good read on that uh, as a team, collective team of, of uh, health specialists where we had most of the guys improving to a certain point. Now, I don't know anyone out there, you might know, but that's, that's purely symmetrical when they do a jump and they, they land uh, purely even on both legs. And, and most sports, you're never going to really do that. You, you're going to land sometimes leaning to one side, you're catching a ball, whatever it may be. But um, with our data, we were able to drive um, improvements through that. And for the athletes themselves, it becomes a, an understanding of why things are done. I'm jumping off a 30 centimeter box. I'm trying to land on my left leg because of these reasons um, and a better buy-in from their point of view. Mm, for sure, for sure. And you, you mentioned the four sticks and, this, and these landing asymmetries and what you sort of uh, do to combat that. Um, are there any other assessments you really like for basketball? Anything else you use uh, besides the landing asymmetries? Obviously, four sticks can pump out a number of uh, number of different metrics um, and valid software. But any, anything mm. else you use that you really like with uh, with basketball? I from the four sticks, we looked at flight time, contraction time, which was great. We could see guys' rate of force development improvement. You know, going from a 0.79 to a 1.1 during a, a different block of training, a specific block of training. I've always liked getting some data on body composition there's various ways you can ascertain that and uh, i've always believed that for a sport like basketball you have to have strong powerful lean athletes a power to weight ratio it's you know is crucial it is um as much as people say it's not a contact sport it is quite physical um like i said the athletes are pretty big athletes um, but you can't tackle someone like you would in, in rugby league or rugby. So, so what, what I was leading towards was um, having an athlete that's, that's got a great power to weight ratio that is, that is physically strong, but also lean in body composition. And then uh, from that, we went, uh, we had a day of testing. That's what I was leading to. We had a day of testing that, I, that I'm not sure the club might've done that way before, but we, we bought in some... Uh, some professionals with some great equipment accompanied by the call by the name of Primco. And we did a 20 meter sprint test. So try to get maximum velocity as much as we could. Um, we also did what's called an NBA agility uh, drill, which is basically sprint forward, lateral slide, sprint back, sprint forward, lateral slide, sprint back uh, around the key uh, and try to have a look at our guys ability to to run at speed, but change direction. Then I brought in also the, the 505 drill and we extended out to a 10.010. So we basically had guys running a straight line and then turning and pivoting, running a distance and running back. And it was, it was fantastic because we're trying to extend that out to a full court type of scenario. 
and with that, um, it was a real good pool of information that we were able to, to retrieve from where they were. This was done pre-season and then we built some programs on that so that we could have a, a team of athletes that were strong, powerful, really fast and quick and could repeatedly perform and execute those physical attributes throughout the course of the game. Mm-hmm. For sure. Makes a lot of sense to me, Nick. Makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. Mate, one of the, uh, you, you've mentioned the sort of differences between pre-season and in-season. And one of the big interest areas for me is where you fit strength and conditioning in around the technical session. So say if there's a, a big technical session on, on a Tuesday afternoon, where are you going to put your strength and power work like uh, before that is it, or around that? Is it going to be before that? Will that impact the technical session? Or will it be after that that will impact your strength and power session? I'd really like to just, uh, if, if you can, sort of give us some details about where you fit strength and conditioning in around the sort of basketball technical sessions and what, what a week might look like. Yeah, great, great uh, question with so many different opinions on how to do, when to do, when's the best time, what's your priorities in the day. I've always found that if you're trying to, obviously pre-season, in-season are different, but if you're trying to develop strength and power and then you have a, an hour and a half or a two-hour block of, of, uh, of activities, sports-based activities that, that might be tapping into those qualities, you're never really going to achieve that, in my opinion. Um, so thankfully, our, our coaching staff was on the, on the same page as, as my philosophies. And we had all of our strength and power sessions first thing in the day. We started our day in the gym, uh, whether it be pre-season, in-season, didn't matter. We started there and, and uh, the programs reflected wherever we were in that time of the year and, and what we needed to achieve for each athlete. And then from that session, we would have a certain time of recovery. Um, guys could replenish. We'd have a team video session and then we'd move in from the video session into our on-court session and our skills and strategies. Now, that's just one way of doing it. Uh, there's, there's many ways of doing it and uh, it depends on what your goals are for the team but I, I'm a firm believer that if you start your, your day in the gym you kind of wake up everyone up you know you get going there, there's some good banter going there's a bit of talk you know guys are, are challenging each other in certain sort of lifts and, and not going crazy with it but but getting a good sort of vibe going that kind of trickles into the rest of the day um, I've been in a situation where you, you I've, I've had those sessions after the, the practice, and it really is difficult to, to, to come off a court or come off a field for any other sport and go, okay, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to apply as much force as I can or, or I'm trying to develop strength. Or it, it's a challenging thing to do. So I, I feel that the strength and power development wakes the body up for whatever team activity or, or skill activity you're going to do. And, and from that, depending on the, on the week and how many games we're playing, but we would always have at least two sessions now uh, uh, in the gym, I should say, you know, with our strength and power development and agility, whatever else it may be. Depending, if you have three games a week, it's hard to squeeze two in depending on the, on the separation of the games. 
but you can always do something. And this is where my, my learnings before, as I was saying before from China, the, the body will only stop when the mind does. So if you have the ability to say to yourself, Twenty minutes that will help you in the long run. And what I found, Joseph, was uh, you know a lot of teams I've worked with have had great athletes, and and everyone's bought in. And and this year's team reminded me of some of the earlier teams in, in the mid two thousands that were successful because everyone bought in. We would have an optional weight session a day before the game because of the structure of the week. You know, it might have been. Uh, a Friday game, we've hit, uh, we played on Sunday, we had a recovery on Monday, there were some optional sessions there, we've had our main session on Tuesday, Wednesday's a lighter day, could have been a recovery, a video, a walkthrough, Thursday's our sharpening day before the game, on Friday, I'd put out an optional session, whoever wants to come in, got some time, um, before we sat on court, I'd have eight, nine, ten guys coming out of the 13, 14. And then some days you'd have everyone come in. Now, we're not going to be doing some crazy lifts or, you know, power cleaning 150 kilos off the ground. But the buy-in from this team was, was fantastic. They would come in. They'd work on some remedial work. They'd work on some strength work, uh, some posterior chain work. They knew what they had to do to keep their bodies ticking along. So your week is always different depending on your games, as we both know. But. There's no reason that you can't come in for, for 15, 20, 25, 30 minutes, whatever it is, and work on three different areas that will keep your body getting better, that won't detract from what you're going to do on the court from a skills point of view. That's, that's how we approach it this year. Mm, mm, for sure, for sure. Yeah, it's, it's, it's such an interesting one. Like just even like you're saying, your preferences do it prior um, and and if, if that works with the coaching staff, that's that's awesome. I think that's a great setup, um, and, and it does sort of potentiate people into the into that next session. Would you have double day court sessions after that? Uh, say, say that again. So so would you have would you have double day? So after they finish with you in the morning, then they have an hour's break or something. They watch some video and then they go on court. Will they have another court session after that as well, or would it normally no. just be one one per day? Just the one, just the one. But when you finish the main team session you'd have, again, and the coaching staff were great in employing this, you'd have optional sessions. Mm -hmm. um, hey, do you need to work on, on some individual work, grab a coach, do so. Do you need to work on some shooting skill, do so. Do you need some recovery? Do you need some uh, therapy from the physios or the myotherapist? Hey, go do, do that. And that's, that leads into the, the component that I was talking about before about um, having the athlete's input. I mean, you know, you could be training me, but you don't know my body as well as I know it. I could do the same with yourself, Joseph. And so, you know, the athletes had the opportunity to pick from different things that they need uh, for that particular day. Like two or three guys with the physios and the myos getting some treatment. There's four or five guys on the court working some individual. Um, there could be one in rehab saying, hey, uh, you know, to me, Nick, can, you, can we go up and I just want to work on some bits and pieces, sure, no problem at all. So I think holistically, you have to have individual requirements and then we always manage to finish our day at the end of that individualized session 
post practice and that was the end of that and, and then you'd uh finish up and you'd have some staff meetings and whatnot and uh yeah finish your day off from there mm, that's awesome mate it's been a wonderful insight to uh one your experiences and in, in both australia and abroad and then also uh insight into your current practices it's been awesome that really has thank mate, you I, I appreciate it i'm gonna wrap this up with a couple of little quick fire questions we, we call them and um look you're more yep. than welcome to uh jump up on onto the lectern and uh and give a a, a really uh a elaborate answer um or it could just be a short one or two words up to you um, yeah. mate what what's you said you had a aha moment earlier in our episode uh when you first went to china but i want to know what what's been your like really big light bulb type moment about physical preparation or maybe it's been you've been speaking to a coach or a colleague or you've been at a conference and some speakers just uh, let it with something profound and you've just been like wow that's exactly what i needed what's been that moment for you typically i i, I kind of sit on things once i once i learn something i i sit there and process it and and, and have a think about if i was to bring this in into my teachings is it something that's going to benefit or detract and i really try and explore every angle before i get too excited and, and jump into it and say okay yeah this is great and and um and you know go for it but early on early early on i was reading a lot of books by a guy by the name of donald chu and donald was supposed to be the professor you know the, the professor or founder or plyometrics and you know big time in the u.s and I'm sure he wasn't the, the, the founder of it, but, um, but I, I kind of read some of his, his uh, research and, and he was talking about the amortization phase in plyometrics and the landing and, and, and making that really quick and, and, and getting off the ground quick. And early on, I, I thought about that and I thought, well, you jump, you land, you just jump again. But then I started to focus in and, and use cues like, there's a pool of fire there. If you don't get out of that fire, you're going to burn your feet just to get that impulse really moving quick. So early on, I would say that um, from a personal point of view, um, the coaches that I've worked with, I've always had aha moments with the coaches I've worked with because they say something in a certain way and you think, what the hell are you talking about? And then you go, oh, I get it. I see. And that kind of drops and And most of the time, those aha moments are more about how you connect with athletes. It's nothing technical, really, although it has been. Um, but typically, it's why is the coach sort of pushing that line with that athlete? Oh, I get it now. I see it. It's because that athlete needs that component to be developed. And, and, and that's the way that that particular coach has has decided to do it. So to answer your question, yeah, from a technical side, you know, Donald Chu and his amortization phase and talking about that and how I employed that. And then from the coach's side, just getting to to get the players and the athletes I work with getting to buy in what I'm trying to do. Yeah, uh, that's cool. That's cool. Mate, next question. What are you going to be most excited about developing or learning in your next 18 months? Uh I'm always trying to improve myself. I'm always trying to get better. Uh, as SNC coaches, I'm sure you're the same. 
you research, you read articles, you kind of find what, what's interesting, what you think can be relevant. What can I make? Uh, what can I ascertain? What can I gain from that information to, to help the athletes that I'm working with um, uh, be better themselves? But in my experience, you know, GPS is relatively new to me. Uh, the Forstex is relatively new. Forstex is a couple of years for me. Uh, GPS is about four, four and a half years. So I still like to learn bits and pieces around that, become more proficient, um, use other tools around it. You know, the GymAware tool we've had on board as well. So I just, I think technology, having started my career without a lot of technology and then having it come in in the last uh, five to 10 years, as I said, that's the, that's the area that I, I'm still trying to improve on. Um, so that you have many tools that you can lean on and many skill sets that you can lean on to, to help you get to wherever you need to with, with the athletes you're working with. Cool, 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 cool. Mate, anything on the bookshelf you'd recommend or any books or courses you'd recommend for the listeners? I'm glad you asked. I actually got them out for you too. <laughs> I read it. This was given to me by an athlete by the name of David Stiff. Great athlete, played in the NBA a long time. He's actually now with the uh, Players Association and he is a registered psychologist. He gave me this book many years ago uh, called The Perfect Mile. Mm, Roger Bannister or something. That's right. Roger Bannister, David Landy, the Australian, and there was an American, Wes Santee as well. And they're all chasing the the um breaking the the four minute mile and it's a great read and uh he gave me this after a championship year and he said you know uh, something along the lines of what is so hard to to achieve is so um glorious at the end or something like that so that was an interesting one and, and i've talked a lot about athlete connection this is another great one open andre agassi been around for a few years now um but um, very interesting read into what he went through to achieve greatness. And so I like to read about people in, in their um, challenges and, and how they, they went through their journeys to, to see if I can learn something from that. Because we're all always learning. Um, I think that's, that's the interesting thing. Uh, you're always on top of the research and you're trying to read as much as you can there. But having the human touch also helps, you know seeing someone like Andre Agassi who's decorated tennis player and, and reached the peak of his uh, of his uh, career with so many titles and different championships to see what he went through was was astonishing and the first one I mean you talk about uh, resilience um, Landy was training at midnight he'd be working all day you know and he'd go out at midnight and run track and drills and get to bed at 3am and get up and work i mean that's phenomenal to me you know that 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 kind of just explores the what i was saying about the human mind being the greatest weapon really he's really making me feel soft right now he really is <laughs> <laughs> now look i i've tried that once or twice and it didn't didn't work too well at midnight i'm like oh i'm trying to go, got to go to bed but um i i really uh i find that inspiring i find that inspiring in people that can do that and I mean, you're talking however many years ago, 50, 60, 70 years, whatever it was when they did it. 
So it was it was phenomenal, phenomenal to read that. For sure, for sure. Mate, uh, for the listeners interested, um, how, how do they get more information about you? Are you on uh, social media, Instagram, Twitter, um, LinkedIn? What's the best way for people to get in contact or, or learn a bit more about you? Absolutely. I'm on LinkedIn. You can just type in my name, N-I-K, Popovich, P-O-P-O-V-I-C. You'll find me there. I'm on Instagram as well, NPOP50. Um, might give you an idea of how old I am. <laughs> so... <laughs> Um, but, uh, yeah, social media is there. If anyone's interested, if, if anyone, um, wants to drop me an email, uh, my email is nick.popovic at melbourneutd.com.au. More than happy to, to speak to people. Always, I always try and remember my path and, and my journey and, and I still don't think I've achieved much really. I'm still trying to improve and get better myself but uh for any aspiring young strength conditioning coaches out there um always i, I make it a conscious effort to, to reply to everyone that contacts me you know questions about how you get into the industry what to do what to study whatever it may be but um remembering where you started from is key for me because i i think you know one of the athletes i work with this year said and he's one of the most decorated athletes in basketball ever. So I guess you could figure out who he is. Um, I'm just an average guy on the way up and an average guy on the way down. And I like that. I thought that was really good. You know, you stay humble, you stay low key, you keep striving to be better. And uh, yeah, always try and remember where you started. For sure, for sure. Well, mate, like I said, wonderful, wonderful insight into your experiences and, and also your sort of uh, your um ideals around preparing uh, basketball athletes so i've got to thank you a lot nick it's been great having you on absolute pleasure my friend thank you very much joseph i really appreciate you and the aca um, wanting to have me on the podcast thank you again for all the uh great questions uh really made me think about how to sort of put that out there and uh appreciate your time as well you know and uh hopefully we'll uh we'll run into each other at the conference you betcha, mate. You betcha. Okay, before we go, we've got to say thanks again to Val Performance. They've really gone behind the ACA and this podcast. As I mentioned before, we started if you're interested in any of their products. Force Frame, Human Track, uh, Force Decks, um, Smart Speed Now. Uh, please check them out valperformance.com at val underscore performance on Instagram and at valperformance on Twitter that will get you where you need to go so that finishes us off for another podcast hope everyone loved this one and until our next episode I'm Joseph Coyne and this is the ACA Podcast <laughs>